Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Please note this podcast is intended to provide information and education and is not intended to provide you with a diagnosis or treatment advice. You should consult with a licensed or registered healthcare professional about your individual condition and circumstance. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in. Today's guest has dedicated his life to advocacy in the rare disease world. Akiva Zablocki is the founder and president of the Hyper IgM Foundation. Welcome, Akiva. We finally made it happen. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So it's interesting because you were initially introduced to me through your brother, Isaac Zablocki, who was on episode 110. And we canceled the recording because of the pandemic. And a few months ago, I'm sitting in acupuncture with my acupuncturist of several years. And out of absolute nowhere, he said to me, do you know Akiva from New York? And I made this face to him like, what do you mean Akiva from New York? Like there's probably a lot of Akivas in New York. (laughs) And all of a sudden I immediately knew he was talking about you. And it was such a funny moment where I was like, oh wait, yeah, I do know Akiva from New York. And I pulled out my phone and I showed him our thread of conversation. He said, he'd be a great podcast guest. And I said, that's why we were talking. So it just happened to be great timing that he brought you back up. I'm happy to have you here and to talk more about your story, long overdue. Tell us who you are, where you're from, and what you do. So I'm Akiva. I like to be the only Akiva and pretend I'm the only Akiva in different situations, but that's obviously not always true. I was born in New York, but uh, raised and grew up in Israel. So that's where I lived most of my formative years. Then after my military service, I moved back to the States. So I've been in New York since 2001. I currently run the Hyper IGM Foundation, which we'll get into, which is a rare disease patient advocacy organization which relates to a rare disease that my son was diagnosed with. How and when was he diagnosed with hyper-IgM? My son was born in 2012, in July 2012. Healthy, normal birth, met all his milestones, you know, received vaccinations and did all the pediatrician visits. Really normal, happy kid, social. And then at around the seven to eight month mark, he started to show signs of like a cold virus, I would say. So started to breathe very fast, very rapidly, but still very playful and happy. So we didn't know what to make of it. Uh, He was doing most of his days at my mother-in-law. She was taking care of him and she noticed it. So she said, you know, I think you should take him to the pediatrician. So we're like, oh, that, you know, that makes sense. We see her any month, every month at that point anyway. And the pediatrician assumed it was a virus and sent us back home. And then two days later when he didn't get better and he continued to have this really rapid breathing, we would come back again and the pediatrician again would say, maybe it's bacterial, maybe it did an extra looked kind of hazy, but really besides the rapid breathing and the oxygen level being a little bit lower, he didn't show any other symptoms. So it was a very strange virus. So we kept on basically going home and coming back a day or two later and doing that again. And then I went on for around two weeks. In those two weeks, his breathing became 70, 80 breaths a minute. 
And at the last visit, I still, we still remember that we were there. His oxygen was down to like the 70s in his pulse ox. And they basically called us an ambulance and said, we're sending you to the ER. And we were shocked. It's like, we're like, wait, wait, he's just a virus. Like, why are we going to the ER? And in the ER, his situation continued to degrade. You know, he needed more and more oxygen, like a mask at the beginning. And then eventually they admitted him to the ICU. And then within 24 hours that we were there, he was already intubated. And no one knew what was going on with him. No one really understood why, I mean, a healthy child is all of a sudden, they thought maybe he had a rare lung disease. When they intubated him, they took out some fluid from his lungs to test. So they started, like, you know, most hospitals, when you have pneumonia or something, they decide you on a broad spectrum antibiotic. On the third day there, the cultures came back and it turned out he had a rare pneumonia called pneumocystis pneumonia or PJP, PCP, there's a couple of names for it. It's an opportunistic infection. So you only get this infection if you are immune compromised. So the majority of the patients that they see with pneumonia were AIDS patients back in the 90s. That's a lot of patients were getting it. Or if you have a primary immune deficiency. Obviously, he didn't have you know, HIV, they, they had tested, you know, at birth and so on. So they went through those tests again. They assumed now he has a immune deficiency. And then when they tested his immunoglobins, it turns out he had no antibodies at all. So he never made any responses to any of the childhood vaccines he had. And he was basically living on borrowed time up until that eight-month mark because he had protection from his mother's maternal blood that was still flowing through his system and that had antibodies in it. But at that point, when it starts to wear off, that's when these opportunistic infections come about. So he spent three weeks in the ICU there at Cornell. Two of them, he was intubated or maybe even more than two. And, you know, it's a first shock, obviously, for new parents. And at the time, they said they had no idea which, which immune deficiency he had. But they sent out tests to all the different hospitals around the country that test specifically for different types of immune deficiencies. They even had transplant doctors come from Sloan while we were masked in the ICU at a separate room to talk to us about transplants already, even without knowing what immune deficiency he had. He recovered well once they knew what antibiotic to give him for PCP. They released him from the hospital, and a couple of weeks later, we got a result back that he had a condition called CD40 ligand deficiency, also known as X-linked hyper-IgM syndrome. And this is a rare one-in-a-million immune deficiency. It's a T-cell deficiency. It's a combined immune deficiency. So essentially, it means that his T-cells don't communicate well with his B-cells, and they don't have that protein that helps communicate and allow the B-cells to produce antibodies, and they don't fight off their own things themselves as well. So basically, they're defective, they don't know they're defective, and without treatment of IVIG, which is intravenous immunoglobulin therapy, which he was going to get weekly, and without antibiotics, these kids don't do very well. We started researching as much as we could about this rare disease because it's one in a million, and we didn't find that many resources out there. There weren't a lot of published papers. The Immune Deficiency Foundation was the first kind of umbrella foundation that we contacted, but they had a one page on their website, kind of outdated, and they connected us with another family that they knew of. But most of the people, we, we didn't think that we would ever meet other people with this disease. And the biggest shock that we had is that the only life-saving treatment that he has is IVIG or subcutaneous IG, we got denied from from our insurance company as soon as we got out of the hospital. So they were not going to pay for it. And they were talking about around $12,000 a month. So that was a complete shock. I mean, at the time, people were starting GoFundMes. So we started a GoFundMe type thing to try to see how we could cover these costs of these $12,000 a month. And we were being told that possibly if we could get a bone marrow transplant, which is the only known cure-ish type thing for this disease, then maybe we could get off the IVG eventually. But then, so we started raising funds and we got 
got lucky with some connections with press, with his story. I think our son, Idan, he looked like a really sweet, cute, beautiful baby. The story resonated. So a New York Daily News article that a friend of ours that connected to a journalist knew, it exploded. So we were on the local news and we people started sharing it everywhere. So we kind of went viral, which helped us with the fundraising, but also helped us connect with so many hyper-GM patients that were just reading about their disease in the newspaper and it's never in the newspaper. So they're reaching out to us and we realize that there's a community there that, that no one knows that should exist because it didn't exist really beforehand. So that's how we kind of started building this community for hyper-GM patients. Wow, what a story. I mean, you said the words, we were new parents. Most people assume those first few months, that first year of a child's life is you just nurturing them and keeping them healthy and making sure everything is good and they're happy and fed and all of that. And here you are in the ICU. What was that experience like for you as a new parent? Extremely traumatizing, obviously. Because you go from having total independence, you know, with your child and just like taking him to the playground and, and, and you know, watching him play for hours, just play with toys. And our son Adam was very bright. You could tell that he's smart. And he liked sitting and he set up like a five months and just sitting and playing with toys, taking things apart, building them again. And then all of a sudden when I see you and they won't allow him to even eat or drink or be on his schedule, it's like the hardest thing with a child in the ICU. They don't let you take any food, which they are right in the end because there's always a risk that he will need to be intubated and it's better not to have a full stomach. And they were right, <laughs> but it's like so hard. And also for me personally, and this connects to another story that I'm happy to tell, it was traumatizing because I had spent time in the ICU myself and I had been through the works with a medical condition of my own. So it was a lot of PTSD coming back. And also just knowing that I had the tools to deal with these doctors, but I had to make our voice hurt. So we were the loud, persistent parents in the ICU demanding answers in those first few days. And I, I had been on some med medical blogging and I had you know, some influence in the medical world in some ways. So I kept them demanding to get answers and they would take us out and have a sit with the head doctor because they didn't have any answers for us. But we made a big fuss to try to get that answer. And I think that helped in the end for our son. So much of this is becoming this advocate and realizing that if you don't use your voice, you don't make a lot of things happen and you don't get what you need. And unfortunately, you had your own experiences to get to that point, but it's so powerful to be able to realize the impact that you can have. And hearing this whole GoFundMe story, I remember it from your brother. I remember like his posts on Facebook years ago and knowing you before I knew you. As you said, there was nothing out there about hyper IgM. There was nothing out there that you could learn more about. And then all of a sudden it gets press and it's like you're being flooded with people were they local? Were they around the world? How were they seeing it? They were everywhere. I have these emails. So they were reaching out to us saying, I can't believe there's another patient. We were told that we would never meet or hear of another patient with hyper-AGM. And now they were connecting with us and they were able to find us because we were, we were at the public face. And our son kind of became the public face of the hyper-AGM syndrome, even before we started the foundation. And they were so thankful to connect. And we were so thankful to connect to hear about their stories, both from adult patients that maybe haven't had a transplant and then from the ones that did have a 
transmit. And I was always a big believer in learning as much as we can about the disease to be able to be empowered to make the best decision. And I do that with my own disease and I do that for our son as well. Connecting with these patients was really part of that empowerment. What did lead you to start the foundation and realize you didn't just want to be a supporter and advocate for your son and your family, but also for other people? So when we were diagnosed, we started out to do a, you know, I would say a global search for the best possible treatments for him. And we know that there could be care with the IVAG and antibiotic prophylaxis, but the median age was still 24 years of age. And 80% of, our, of these patients weren't living past 30. So we knew that it was a ticking timeline. We need, we need to do something. But we wanted to make the best decision. So we started reaching out to any immunologist that we could get our hands on, any connections that we had. We started traveling around to go visit different hospitals around the country and talk to them personally about their transplant and about their immunology team, find out what they're going to offer. And we discovered that every single hospital does these bone marrow transplants differently with a different protocol. They don't all Always talk to each other, and everyone thinks that their protocol is the best. Obviously. And we were very fortunate to be told that we do have matches out there. So we did not go through that whole process of looking for a match. They were, they were told that there were 12 matches in the system. That was amazing. We really wanted to find the best care. So along the way, we met and learned about a lot of different treatments and doctors out there. And that kind of built that first network of all these immunologists and transplanters that we eventually then knew and helped, you know, when we were building the foundation. We ended up, after really visiting seven or eight different transplant centers, we ended up choosing a center in in Seattle, which had a protocol that none of the other centers had that was based on a European protocol with a chemotherapy that was less toxic for our son. And their immunology team was amazing. They had been part of the first diagnosis of this gene. So they knew it well, and they'd done most of the testing. Our New York doctor had sent the original blood vial from the hospital to Seattle to do that testing. So they, they were the ones that diagnosed him. So the doctors there were just amazing, and we decided to do the transplant there. During that time, we had created first a support group online. Randomly, a college roommate from the dorms of my brother, Isaac, had a child with hyperagium, which is so rare, the fact that that would be a connection. When we were diagnosed, my Isaac goes to me, I think I know someone with this disease. And we're like, no, no, no chance. It's one in a million. And this family in New Jersey, turns out they had this as well. And they had been through the same things that we had been through. So we connected with them, obviously, and they were really helpful with their advice. But they had been part of a small Yahoo group that existed with a mother from Virginia that created this that had it in her family. So there were many cousins in her family. And there were around 12 people in that group. So once we connected with them, I was like, listen, we need to transfer this to Facebook. I had a lot of experience creating groups and communities. So we started to grow this hyper gym community while we were going through that first transplant. And it was during that first transplant, one of the doctors there, one of the oldest immunologists in the country, I would say, he was one of the people that discovered hyper GM. He said to us, I think you need to start something more than just this group. I mean, there's a need out here for a patient advocacy group. And, you know, my wife, was a healthcare attorney at the time. I had a master's in public health and had worked in healthcare consulting and had also been on the board of a national foundation for over 10 years. So I had the know-how and we were like, yes, I think you're right. We need to do this. So it was during that first transplant, which you know we spent months in the hospital, we decided to create this foundation so that we could raise funds, advocate for our patients, eventually also give out research grants and connect our patients to the best possible care. 
Wow, that's incredible. And fun fact, one of those doctors in Seattle is my main doctor here in Tel Aviv that I always refer to as I couldn't live in this country if it weren't for him. So shout out to Dr. Hagin because really game changer for both of our lives, right? Yeah, David has been great. He was, I mean, when we moved to Seattle the first time, he was living on the block that we rented an apartment. So I got to meet with him and just talk immunology, which I've become like an amateur immunologist, but it was so helpful to have a real MD, PhD to like explain things to me that I don't always understand. His explanations helped me simplify it then for everything we've done since then with patients and our website and so on. So he's been amazing. I just saw him two days ago because I was out in the Clinical Immunology Society's annual meeting and he was there. So we got to catch up, which had been a few years since COVID. So we hadn't seen each other. I saw the picture and then he and I were emailing and he was with my doctor from the NIH. It's like so incestual, this little infectious disease and immunology world. Yeah, it's a small community. And that's what we've discovered along the way. It is a small community. They all kind of know each other and they've become a lot more collaborative over the years. So there's a lot more. I mean, our patients could use our network to consult with other doctors when they need to. And the doctors are happy to consult with these doctors. So it's become a really good tight-knit community. So when you started that Facebook group, you mentioned that you'd had experience starting communities before. Can you speak to what you meant by that? So hyperagam is is my second rare disease world. Way beforehand, I was active in the brain tumor and oncology world. And that's because as a senior in college, I was, I mean, I was an older senior because I had done the military first, but I was diagnosed at 25 with a brain tumor. And at the time I was being told it was an inoperable brain tumor in my brain brainstem and there's not much I can do for it. So similar situation where like I'm being told by many doctors that there's not much you can do, there's not much hope. And I set out at that time to find myself a cure. So with my family, we had searched globally for a treatment, if it's chemotherapy, radiation, a, a neurosurgery. I was given around two years to live and told that the brain tumor was inoperable. And uh, we were lucky enough, my brother, not Isaac, my oldest brother, uh, found a neurosurgeon out in Arizona that had expertise in cutting the brainstem. And he did it hundreds of times, something that many doctors in, in New York said that was impossible. I, I was told by like head neurosurgeons here in New York that if anybody touches me, they would kill me. But being 25 and young and thinking I, you know, I want to live a long life, I ended up flying out to Arizona, having neurosurgery there. Um, they removed my whole tumor from the brainstem. And I... I think I'm going on 17 or 18 years now. I lose count already, but I've been healthy ever since. I mean, obviously I have some disabilities, visual you know, disabilities and other ones, but I'm here on the line. And that threw me into getting involved both in healthcare in general. I changed my career course from finance and I thought I was going to be like, you know, Wall Street type person. And I ended up getting a master's in public health and going into healthcare consulting. And it also threw me into the brain tumor world. I was on the board of the Children's Brain Tumor Foundation, helped create their social communities back in the day and was an outspoken advocate in the world of participatory health and cancer. So on. So I had been creating groups <laughs> since, since the beginning of Facebook, I would say. And I always saw my job as like someone to connect people and empower patients with the best possible tools to make their decisions. That was my, my goal in life. Um, and then when my son was diagnosed, I was like, oh, I know how to do this. This is what I've been doing uh, on the side, but now, I, now I'll do it full time. 
It's like the world gave you a child who had a rare disease to see like, hey, you have this experience, you know how to deal with this. You know how to deal with challenging situations. Let's see if you can handle this one. And you stepped up to the plate, which clearly you're really good at. And I'm wondering how you find the balance between managing this community and doing this advocacy work professionally, managing your health, managing your son's health, and taking time for yourself. How do you find that balance? Is there a balance? That's a question. It's obviously harder being in the in this world because I tend to know every patient individually and I know their stories and I connect with them one-on-one. We've connected with over 300 patients globally with Hypergem. And I follow their stories and I talk to their parents and that means also being there when things don't go well. And that's been hard, obviously, to deal with that and to kind of compartmentalize, to be able to like, you know, when you lose a patient, not to not to have that throw you off entirely with your goals and when you think should still be driving forward for the foundation. But it obviously that, that part is the hardest part because we connect with them. And then like, I ended up talking about it with my wife and, and, and my son here. And my son is almost 11. He is part of the best outcome for disease because he had, I mean, he did have two bone marrow transplants before the age four to kind of cure him. And while we don't always talk about a real cure, he's been very healthy since age five. So he's been off medication. So he's the best possible outcome. And, and I like showcasing him for that best possible outcome, but also so many other patients didn't have that outcome. And that's really hard on us, I would say. And I mean, obviously hard for the whole community when there's a loss like that. Yeah, I find the balance. I mean, I mean, I still, I'm still the primary caretaker for both of my kids while I do the foundation work. And my wife is able to support us because she is, she's a healthcare attorney. So that makes sense. You know, we do, we can, we take the little, little wins, you know, the little vacations with the family and so on. That's like important. So you say that he's sort of the poster child for hyper IgM. What are his symptoms these days and how are they treated? Right now, he's doing great. He's not, I mean, we don't worry about him anymore. He's the poster child for a successful transplant. But not all patients can do that. So I, I mean, I would say most of our work is trying to find a better, safer cure for these patients. I don't know what the listeners know about a bone marrow transplant, but it's a very complicated procedure. I, I always say I've had brain surgery and that looks like a minor cold compared to a bone marrow transplant. It usually takes a whole year out of your life. You get harsh chemotherapy, you go through a long recovery process with no immune system, and there's a lot of complications that could go along the way. So while my son has been cured, essentially, we are looking to make sure that other patients can have a better outcome. And with hyper-IgM, still, unfortunately, we see that most patients are not making it far, you know, into their adulthood. And we don't entirely have, even with the right treatments, even with being on IVNG and Bactrim, we lose a lot of patients along the way. And unfortunately, we still lose a lot of patients during the transplant process. So we've been focusing on trying to encourage the research out there. There are researchers working on gene editing and gene therapy for hyper-OGM, and we hope that that would be a better, safer cure. But my son is doing great. So, I mean, he's going to sleepaway camp this summer with no medications besides his lactose intolerance, which is, you know, manageable, obviously. For most people, he'll go to a horse camp later in the summer. So he's doing great. But most of our patients obviously are not in that situation. So I dedicated the rest of my time to advocating for these patients. 
I'm thrilled to hear that for him and for your family and that you continue to do this work. When you bring up bone marrow transplant, it makes me think of a past guest, episode 19 with Jan Weiss. Her daughter, Lucy, had a transplant at the NIH several years ago, and there was a documentary on on her story, First in Human, that featured my doctor from the NIH, Dr. Alexandra Freeman, who's also been on the podcast numerous times, and just never personally knowing much about transplants until that show. And wow, again, I I go back to like, how as a parent do you deal with that? Because it just was so grueling to watch and see this little girl go through this process. Right now, you have a great outcome and a great kid who's clearly living a full life. For the people who are struggling, what kind of support are you able to provide with your foundation and how is it impacting people's lives? I mean, having the patient support group has been, I, mean, I hear this all the time from the patients, has been an invaluable resource. I mean, years ago, they would have no one to talk to with the disease. Maybe if they're living in the right place, they could connect with another family through like the New Deficiency Foundation. But having this support group that right when they get diagnosed, they could start asking questions and find out about other people's experiences is a, you know an amazing resource for them. Besides that, we try to connect them with the best care. If they're not in an area or not in a hospital that really understands hyper-IGM, we try to make sure that they are connected to the correct doctors that, that help them make those decisions, whether it's going through a bone marrow transplant or not going through a bone marrow transplant. And we provide a lot of educational resources, both on our website and putting on webinars. And once in a while, we'll, we'll do a session with the Immune Deficiency Foundation, possibly have a bigger conference within their national conference. In 2019, we had a full day track just on hyper-IGM where we brought in families all over the world and we funded their scholarships to come to the sessions and come to the Immune Deficiency Foundation's conference and hear from the best doctors out there. And besides that, we've been giving out uh, research grants to hopefully advance the science into both understanding hyper-IGM, but also leading to better long-term outcomes for our patients. We both do our research ourselves with surveys and so on and with uh, some of the physicians, but also funding with grants to physicians working on a cure. Yeah, you mentioned the Immune Deficiency Foundation, which I'm on the board of and have been involved with for many years. And I'm remembering that my first touch point was them connecting me with a patient with hyper IgE, which is what I have. And this patient was the person who started the Facebook group for the community of people with hyper IgE syndrome. And I remember going in there and all of a sudden for the first time in my life going, oh my God, these people know what these symptoms are like. Like I, I I felt so alone and isolated in these odd symptoms that I was dealing with at that time, mostly skin related. And I'm like, oh my God, there's other people going through this. And there's such impact that that can have just simply from knowing there's other people that get it. There's more, you know, layers to that, finding the right doctors, the right treatments, figuring out what's right for you. I've found that I need to create a bit of a boundary from the group because to your point, I'm on the healthier side compared to a lot of people in the group, so it's a little intense to be in there. It's a, it's an amazing resource to have that when I go in there, I, I often get what I need out of it. If people are hearing about the Hyper IgM Foundation for the first time, what do you want them to know about the condition and the foundation? And how can they take initiative? I mean, as far as the condition goes, I mean, I explained that a little bit before. Our patients have a genetic defect for the most of our patients of the X-linked kind. So it gets passed along along the X-link. Once you are a carrier of that, you'll pass it along a 50% chance that you'll pass along to your children. And these 
patients have real no real functioning immune system essentially so they need a lot of supportive care with kind of band-aids which is you know giving them infusions of antibodies and so on but for example this covid pandemic has been very hard on, on our patients they've already been isolated most of their life in some ways i mean the ones that aren't having bone marrow transplants might be in school but they're the kind of kids that, that like miss a lot of days of school because they have infections and they get sick or they get pulled because the, the flu is going around and so on so covid is been especially hard on our patients and it will continue to be hard because most of the world has moved on from being afraid of COVID, but our patients would still be afraid of COVID because the vaccines don't work on our patients. So while we are hoping that the infusions of the antibodies they get have enough antibodies from the vaccinated population at this point, you know, for many years, for the first years, it wasn't there, but now it's probably more there. It's still uh, going to be scary for them going forward. And I would say that, you know, we are raising funds for research and obviously we, we do several big fundraisers every year. So we always have people to check out our website. One of our biggest fundraisers is coming up soon, which is uh, what we do in honor of our son's transplant anniversary. So we do that every July. This year will be the seventh year and we hope to raise around $30,000 with that fundraiser. So we'll showcase his story, spread the word both, you know, within our website and on, you know, social media. So people could follow that I love that you do that. I've always celebrated my surgery anniversary. This year was my 11th year. And I just wow. feel like it's an important milestone to be grateful to be alive and be surrounded by the people I love and just sort of honor that crazy day. How can you explain the difference between hyper IgM syndrome and hyper IgE syndrome, which is what I have? So hyper IgM syndrome for the majority of our patients is a misnomer. It is not the correct name for our disease. When it was discovered, uh, many of our patients hadn't been on the correct treatments, which led to the IgM antibody, which is the most basic antibody that our B cells create to kind of go out and, and be very large because it wasn't creating any other of the IgGs, IgE, IgAs. So our disease really should be called class switch recombination deficiency. Essentially, it means that we cannot change the type of antibody that we have between IgM and the, the ones that are specialized like IgG, which was what all we know when, when we get vaccines, that's what we produce. Hyper-IG is also a genetic defect that uh, results in the elevated levels of the IgE antibody. And the IgE antibody, most of us know about from allergies, right? Because that's the most, uh, that's the common cause of asthma and other things you know, and allergies. It's all Ig. So patients, from what I understand with uh, hyper Ig, they have a lot of autoimmune issues attacking their lungs, their skin and other areas. So when your brother Isaac was on the show, he spoke about his experience with dysgraphia. And I'm curious how that plays into your life and you managing your own experience with that. I mean, someone needs to research our family, I think, because it's probably on the Y chromosome, because all the men in our family have dyslexia and dysgraphia and so on. I was diagnosed, I think, before him, even though he had it this whole life, but but I was diagnosed in 10th grade, with at first with dysgraphia and then eventually with dyslexia as well. And that was after failing every single subject in 10th grade. They were going to kick me out of high school. They were like, they called my parents in and they said, you know, he's failed every subject. The social worker here wants to get him tested before we make a decision. And once we got I got tested. Obviously, I mean, I scored very high on most things. And then on like spelling level, it was like a fourth grader spelling level. And my handwriting was, you couldn't read it. My reading was around a fifth grader being able to sort out words. And everyone's like, 
I mean, how has he gone by so long without that? But once I got accommodations, I was able to excel. And, you know, I finished high school, went to the military, went to Columbia University for both an undergraduate and undergraduate degree. So I haven't had let it hold me back as much. But I, I see with my son, for example, my son is brilliant, smarter than me <laughs> by far. But his handwriting <laughs> it's like reminds me of my of my handwriting. And luckily, he's living in a world where there's way more computer use. He's in fifth grade, but they mostly use a Chromebook now, so that really helps. Luckily, he does not have the spelling issue I have, so it's really for him only dysgraphia with the handwriting and the forming of letters and numbers. But he's you know he plays scrabbles with adults and does really well. So he, something that for me I can never do. Wow. And how would you describe how he handles his experience with hyper IgM? Does he talk about it with friends? Do friends know that he has it? That is an excellent question because we're going to be doing a series soon with HyperGM children, interviewing HyperGM children. So he's going to be probably one of the first interviewees. Um, and we'll see what he still remembers of the time and what how he relates to it now. I think he's gotten used to, in some ways, being the poster child because he was on our, a lot of our promotional material for a while. I mean, he's a great looking kid. So he like looks like a little model. And also he, we've used his story to showcase hyper AGM. So he's grown up with it. I think now in fifth grade, he's probably a little bit more private about this. The kids that have been with him since first and second grade, they probably know his story, but the newer kids that have joined since probably don't know anything about it. And I'm sure he keeps it kind of quiet because it's hard to talk about it when you're 10 or 11 years old. But for years, he was, uh, you know, he's on news, he gets interviewed, there's an article coming out soon. I think it's going to be in the Jerusalem Post in Israel because his donor came through birthright and and we've been connected with the Gift of Life Foundation for many years because of that. And they're reaching, they're like a milestone of like, I don't know if it's the 100,000 donor or some, some huge number. So they're showcasing his story again with his donor story. And we got to meet his donor on stage in front of 500 people at a Gift of Life gala. I, I, I could share that with you too. You could put it in the, in the links. We talk about an emotional experience. We always wanted to meet the person that saved our son's life. When we reached out to the registry, they're like, oh, you know what? You'd be perfect for this meeting that we do once a year at a gala in front of 500 people. Um, so my son was, I think, in second grade or first grade, second grade. You know, we were up on a stage, they showcased our story, and then we got to meet Alex, um, his donor, in front of, I mean, it was amazing. We've kept in touch with him. He's a great guy. But I think my son has gotten used to it. I do need to be more careful now. I think he's asked me not, not to post a picture of him on social media without his permission, which I get now. So I have to run him by and make sure he looks good enough and he's okay with what I write. Wow, what an incredible story. For those who are not familiar with Gift of Life and did not go on birthright like I did, which is what brought me to Israel initially, can you explain what it is? So Gift of Life Registry uh, has been since the 80s, I believe, swabbing people for matching for bone marrow transplants. The majority of the patients, obviously, that do bone marrow transplants are with leukemia and things that like our blood uh, cancers. But also all the immune deficient patients that need bone marrow transplants go through registries. The Gift of Life actually is one of these registries that started off because at the time, the founder, uh, who was Ashkenazi Jewish, did not have a match in any of the other registries that already existed. And there weren't a lot of Ashkenazi Jews in the registry. And he set out to change that and he did a you know drive for himself, but eventually it became this organization. And now if you're an Ashkenazi Jew, there's an 85% chance that you'll find a match because of this registry. In the last 15 or 20 years, they've been also swabbing almost everyone that goes on a birthright trip, which is exactly the target audience to be a, a bone marrow donor because it's the right age. It's like in their you know 18 to 20s, which is the perfect time to donate. And you get swabbed and you're in the registry and you might never be called. Or you'll get the call like Alex got 
he was finishing up college and he got a call that there's a four-year-old that, that he could save his life. And he's like, sure, I'll do it. He didn't even remember registering on birthright because birthright is a blur for many people. <laughs> that trip to Israel takes Jewish 18 to 27-year-olds for their first time in Israel, which is an amazing experience. Um, and I actually had staffed those trips like four or five times during college. I was very familiar. So it was another kind of like serendipity to have the donor swab on birthright and then, you know, be a perfect match and, and be able to save our son. Wow, that's so cool. And I appreciate you acknowledging that birthright's a blur because yes, it is. And <laughs> trying to figure out if I was swabbed. I'm like digging so deep to go, did I get swabbed? Because I think I did. But it's such an interesting concept of how that's incorporated into birthright and a lot of the incredible healthcare that is coming out of Israel. I mean, vaccines starting here for COVID and just living here and being exposed to all that's being developed here is really incredible. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate you chatting with me today. I want to end on a final question, which is, what do you want people to know about invisible illness? I would say with hypergym patients, for example, it's all internal. Their disability is in their gene. There's an error in their gene and their immune system doesn't function. But to the outside world, they, they walk around on the street. The kids look so normal. I mean, with our son, it took us so long to even convince some of our closest friends and family that he was really sick because he doesn't look sick. And we would go in an elevator and try to avoid a person coughing. And we would be like, oh, sorry, don't get close to our son. He's very sick. And they would say, well, he doesn't look sick. He looks great. And he did. He looked great. He When he went into bone marrow transplant, he looked like a healthy toddler and then eventually a healthy you know four-year-old he did not ever seem until the bone marrow transplant made him sick because of the chemotherapy so our patients walk around in the world and no one knows that they're sick unless they decide to you know tell them and, and they might disappear to get their infusions once a week or once every three weeks whichever schedule they're on and they might miss work if they're in their working age and they might miss school and you would wonder well, why is my new employee taking off now a week and, so, and, and they might not tell you that either they have this hypergem syndrome and it's all internally so i think it's important to when you find out about it to be aware of the fact that while they look healthy you know it's all going on inside of them they don't have the defenses that, that they need to protect them the way the rest of us walk around the world kind of being okay with people sneezing next to us and coughing Sounds very familiar to my experiences. Where can people find you, connect with you further, and learn more about the HyperIGM Foundation? So obviously on our website, hyperigm.org, and I'm, I'm easy to find Akiva at hyperigm.org. And like I like to pretend I'm the only Akiva in the world. So literally facebook.com slash Akiva, that's me. I was able to get that back when they started those vanity things. Facebook.com slash Akiva, so I'm easy to find. Um, and we would love for people to check out our website and check out our Facebook pages. Thank you so much, Akiva. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your support means the world to us. Visit madevisiblestories.com to check out our writing workshops, corporate offerings, and more information that can help you in navigating life with an invisible illness. Follow Made Visible Stories on Instagram. See you next week.